Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Now this is a, another episode of our BossCast series where we go head-to-head with some of the, the biggest brains in the sector, some of the uh, property bosses that have defined the market over the last years. And we're very grateful for Chris Oglesby coming in to see us today. He's the boss at Bruntwood. Unfortunately, Chris, you seem to have brought the Mancunian weather with you. <laughs> that rain does look very familiar. It's Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we, we were expecting sunshine and, and, and rainbows, but, but unfortunately we, we, we've got stormy stormy clouds. And, and uh, I, I guess that from your perspective, a lot of the storm clouds in the market seem to be disappearing, thankfully, uh, a bit bit faster than some of the weather outside. Is that, is that what you're seeing, Chris? It, it is, yes. Um, I think... You know what? 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 A num- what? What? Everybody's really been saying about uh, the uh, the pandemic is it has accelerated some trends that were already uh, were already prevalent prior to uh, COVID, and Bruntwood had positioned itself well uh, in terms of what we saw as the growing sectors in the economy, and what we've what we've seen effectively through COVID is just an acceleration, and this. This K-shaped recovery that um, increasingly, I think everybody is 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 seeing um, as the likely scenario is where you're going to see uh, those businesses that are succeeding, succeeding big and growing very significantly on the upside of the K, and then on the downside of the K, those uh, those businesses and industries that are going to struggle really, really then in the future, uh, their decline is going to be accelerated and. Uh, as I say, what we've been trying to do is position ourselves to be satisfying those uh, those companies on the upside. Mm. Hey, and certainly you, your play into life sciences um, has has been yeah absolutely uh, perfectly timed, um, absolute master of, of of timing. And and you're celebrating an anniversary, aren't you, Chris? Although you don't look it, you've been at Brumwood for thirty years now. Um, an amazing innings. Um, what what are you? Um, Tell us about a couple of the highlights from the from the first, obviously the first thirty years, and, and we'll talk about the next thirty years in a second. But yeah, it's a bit of trip down memory lane coming to see you here actually, because uh, you're just off um, you're just off Holborn, where uh, where I used to walk up and down to university to LSE when I was uh, when I was in London. But yeah, I left London in ninety one. Uh, so Walking or swaggering? Come on, <laughs> I think it was more staggering. But anyway. That's, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, 30 years at Bromwood and, uh, and, and when everybody asks me this, um, that I think people would say, well, was it, is it, is it, is it the particular development you've done? Uh, you know, ultimately for me, the, the thing that uh, gives me the most satisfaction is the culture we've created with the thousand plus people we've now got working, uh, working for Bromwood. And it's the culture of our business that, uh, absolutely differentiates, uh, differentiates us and gives us that competitive advantage. And, and I, I guess also, not having shareholders to deal with and and, and too many but you've, I mean, you've got lots of partners now as i was going to say not having any investors but you've, you've been you've been racking up jv partners we've, we've got a few jvs now <laughs> certainly and uh and those we find uh we, we find very uh rewarding typically there with people who ultimately we feel are going to add value to the uh the, the proposition whether that's partnering with a university um such as the manchester universities uh in manchester science partnerships whether it's the hospital trust in manchester through the city labs development a local authority like trafford that's um that's looking at community-led regen of its town centres or for that matter when we teamed up with lgc uh for uh for Bromwood where 
Um, it felt like every every time we walked through the revolving door into speak to a university or local authority, uh, LNG were were going out the, out the same revolving door and had got the and had got in early um, and were uh, and, and were pursuing a similar strategy. So that 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 seemed again to be a very value add. Yeah, an alignment yeah. alignment of interest. So I mean, let, let's let's just go into let's deep dive into the partnership piece to start with because I think one of the one of the biggest challenges we're going to have is repairing town centres and. We've talked for many years in in this industry about partnership, and it's one of these terms that's become so meaningless over the years, like placemaking and smart cities and sustainability. You know, list them, uh, list your bullshit bingo card over here, and, and and I'm sure partnership would be would be in the middle of it. But what is the actual? What's the mechanism to make these things work? Because clearly, in some areas, we're just going to have to accept that that. Elements of those town centres are going to be dead and not not recoverable. Yeah, you see, you're, you're so cynical, aren't you? Because, I mean, your bullshit bingo is my mantra. I mean, these are the things that ultimately have, have, have driven the success of our business. But they are, these are things that authentic... But the substance... I, I mean, they are, but, they but, are the things that authentic... My, my issue isn't the substance. My, my issue they is... Become, they, become the, they become the buzzwords yeah, in my, the industry. My issue is, is, is that a lot of people, you know, in 16, 17 years of, 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 of working in this market, I, I, I you know, I've met a lot of people... That, that talk a good game and then yep. you scratch below the surface. And there's nothing there. And there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's a huge, a huge difference with Bromwood and companies like Legal and General that, that, that do stand by uh, and, and do stand by what they do and, and, and do walk the walk. But unfortunately, um, I, I think it's not just my cynicism. I'm echoing no, cynicism. No, 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 you no, no, sorry, you know, I didn't mean it personally. And, and I, you're no, no, absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, the, that, that what you just see time and time again is, is is a traditional prop co who understands that right if we want to do that opportunity i need to work out how i'm going to partner with yeah. the local authority or public sector so then they try and reverse engineer something into the business that just isn't uh, part of their dna whereas for us working in partnership has always been part of the way in which we operate and um there's no question that sort of the root at the root of it is something that has very much driven manchester over the last 30 years that culture of collaboration in the well, city it's, it's this open and, arms attitude that, yeah. that's been and, and you, you know you put it side by side with other cities and i think leeds is now catching up birmingham did catch up a, a couple of years ago but that 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 open arms attitude that sir howard had as 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 the Boss of Manchester, boss of the firm. Yeah. Um, really, really, you know, it was like Sir Alex, wasn't it? It just, it, it was a kind of. I like, prefer to liken it to Pep, but I know what you mean. Yeah, no, okay. Um, I thought you so, might say that. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's having that principle of ultimately, um, that our business is all about demand generation in the first instance and then satisfying that demand. And yet so much of our industry has just focused on the supply side. And when you are focused on driving the demand, then typically working in partnership in order to be able to do that and then thinking about how you satisfy it with your construction and development skills. Mm. So if you take that back into the town centres, and, you know, our industry and local authority leadership have between them conspired to absolutely screw up our town centres since the sort of 1970s and 80s. And uh, actually getting back to what is a town centre, it's the centre of its community. What is it that community are going to want out of their towns Um and, and and how do we position, reposition um, the, the 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 real estate to drive the demand to uh, to ultimately make those communities again? Mm. So what 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 what's changing? So if we think about the substance, then 
how, what are some of the things, what are some of the screw-ups that we need to try and undo? Actually, first of all, it's the it's it's the the, the 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 one of the things that we're creating, whether it's in our innovation districts or um, in our CBDs, and for this matter now in our towns, is the the importance and power of clustering. Uh, and ecosystem cre- yeah, creation. exactly. Creating a community now—that's what those towns used to be before. What we allowed to happen was the breakup of those communities, whether it be you know ripping the retail out and putting it um, on the edge of town. And I believe out of town retailing's had a far bigger impact on the high street than say ecom has had on the high street. Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And then out of town business parks uh, taking the people then that were working in the in the town out of. The the town and then uh, and, and then more and more suburban living developing out into the green belt with some fairly uh, you know housing that's then away from the public transport infrastructure so people get in the cars they're not even going through that well, Cambridge is a good example I mean Cambridge is possibly <laughs> the worst designed uh, uh, urban location in, in, in Europe you know in terms of sort of yeah. skills and, and income per capita versus how bad it is to get around I mean it's a, it's, it's a perfect example of that I mean it's I guess you call it the Americanization of, of, of the UK where everyone decided, right, let's have these yep. cars and grids and big malls and things where and I remember growing up in Ilford, um, we had a we had the Ilford Exchange and it had a had an HMV, it had an Alders, had a big Smiths and and you know, the minute where uh, Stratford Westfield cropped up and it just decimated it. It decimated these town centres and yep. and and I think this this attitude, oh, well, we always needs another John Lewis. I, that, that we've just kept perpetuating yes. this this myth, haven't we? Yeah. Um, so, in in terms of your work, then, how do you how does Brumwood engage with the local authority? What are you bringing to the party? So, um, it's a, it, firstly, we're there for the long term. So, this isn't about making a fast buck and then disappearing. We're, we're, we're looking to put down roots long term in place and to work them very closely with the community as to what it wants out of its town. So that, so again, demand driven. So that, uh, so that, so, so that ultimately, over a period of time, you're going to put that footfall back into that place. And part, in part, it's repopulating the town with more people living there. In order to do so, it's got to be a more attractive place to live. So, looking at the infrastructure that then is is to make those towns more attractive places to live, getting people back working in those towns. So, thinking about different uh, models for um, for workspace and. Again, one of the things that Brumwood has with such, with its very significant city centre holdings is that we're able to do hub and spoke um, uh, property deals, and we're starting to do more and more of those now, where people are taking space from us in a town and in a city, allowing people to work for out of two locations, um, but also uh, re- taking in our sort of our co working and our managed um, space, etc., and recreating enterprise hubs in town centres to, uh, to to tap into the local entrepreneurial communities. It's almost a, a, a flow through of, of essentially what North Shoring was originally. So I, mean, I don't know what you call it, suburban shoring or something exactly. like that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and and there's no question that um, for for me this is the next phase of the uh, the renaissance of our regional cities post you know following their post industrial decline is you start we started um, through the 90s and 2000s repopulating the city centres on the back of financial and professional services we're now building out the innovation districts that are 
driving those sort of fourth industrial revolution disruptor industries in those cities. But then for those cities to thrive, they then need a network of towns that are very livable places that um, that allow for the um, for the labor market to continue to mm. grow in those cities. And, you know, that, that for those places to be truly livable, they need to have all of the individual constituent parts that make them places that uh, that actually people want to live. And in the same way that London is arguably a network of villages, so we see our regional cities becoming a network of villages and towns that are fully interconnected. And how do you, how does the interplay with transport work? Because that that's always been the limiting factor in in, in many towns across the UK where London takes for granted the, the the black hole of funding that goes into the tube and, and night buses, but try and find a bus in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and you know Cambridge is a pretty wealthy place, right? Yeah. Much, much you know, much more so than any of uh, many many former mining industrial towns that are that are scraping by. Mm-hmm. How does that interplay work? Because fundamentally, if that infrastructure isn't there, you could be the fan- the best service office operation in the world and, and no one's going to go and work there no no and that's where um again ensuring that all of the infrastructure is there to support um the activity that we're looking um to develop is uh, is so essential and the transport infrastructure is a key part of that um the base infrastructure in many places is there and what it just requires is the the increase in investment in capacity um but also then as we we you know fortunate enough in Manchester to have the the metrolink in other cities starting mm. to get those light transport uh, systems that complement then heavy rail i'm i'm a big fan of rail still ultimately if i look at the towns around manchester with that have got the direct rail links there you, you you can get into the city center in in less than 15 minutes and that still is the most effective way of of tra- Traveling between a town and a and, yeah. and its and its urban centre. No, there's a lot of money gone into that. I mean, and and so with with working with Trafford, then how does that how does that how does that interplay function day to day? So you're you're totally is it a fifty fifty JV in the real estate? What what's it's the, a fifty fifty JV in the real estate, and then um, we we effectively are running the um, the development and the asset management of the two town centres, uh, Stretford and Altrincham. Um, and uh, in doing so, we're, as, as, as I say, looking to introduce the alternative uses, reposition the retail and leisure proposition there. But actually, we go much deeper than that. Our, our business is effectively owned 30% by a charitable trust, which is my father's uh, legacy shareholding, and uh, actually working deep in the community, at looking at all of the uh, elements um, that will effectively help that community to thrive, that ultimately means that the town centres will thrive as well. You mentioned transport infrastructure and as important is looking at skills as well which Mm. ultimately is the thing the thing that drives the demand for office space are skilled people that have got the skills required in order to be able to undertake the jobs that happen there and therefore upskilling the population so that they're 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 capable of taking those 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 jobs on and making sure that these town centers this time around are being developed for their communities as opposed to as in the past they were being developed for the financial institution that was backing the developer ultimately that was trying to secure the 25-year lease on whatever it was that they could get the 25-year lease and disappear off and over the horizon yeah i mean does that mean then that local authorities essentially need to turn into real estate operating businesses that can run a, a mishmash of of workspace and no no they need to find somebody to partner with that they that's going to be there for the long term will do that but the local authorities themselves are 
fundamentally believe are not the right people to be doing that and up and down the country. We've seen examples of where the public sector has tried to develop out property uh, mm. with the with potentially the wrong drivers that have meant that the product has been uh, has been the wrong product. So. No, there's a number of examples where we've got local authorities that perhaps have tried to go it alone and it's not worked. And yeah, well, um, there's some that are moving people out of their 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 council offices into shopping centres they bought so they can sell the offices for redevelopment and, yeah. and mask over the terrible decisions they've made buying malls. Yeah, um, I won't I won't name them in case we won't go into that. But <laughs> if, I don't. But know, I think you, buying, you might buying be about mall, to work with buying, one at least them, so. buying buying the mall in your own town makes some sense. But uh, where they've been buying malls in other towns, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. But, no, yeah. I, I, absolutely. But look, 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 the skills is an interesting segue into into life sciences, and 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 you have absolutely been ahead of the market by some years. There, it's it's the hottest the hottest trend in real estate in the in the current climate. Um, but but tell us about the that that shift because you you've been moving gradually south over the last few years. The life sciences piece really underpins that that notion of ecosystem that you're talking about, and it from what you're doing goes far beyond simple real estate investment. You're taking stakes in businesses, you're you're running accelerators, and you're plugging occupiers into this network of skills that you describe and some of the wider relationships that you have clearly with with, with NHS mm. trusts obviously align perfectly with with having occupiers that are trying to solve massive health problems. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we just talked um, briefly about the town centre work and that's, we, we see there are these two drivers for the commercial real estate market at the moment, what we're calling the hyper-local community-led development. And then at the other, the other extreme, we've got these innovation districts that we're developing that are focused on um, those big sort of fourth industrial revolution disruptors of which life science and health is one, but it is only, it is only one. And whilst the industry at the moment is talking very much about life sciences. There are very few life science locations that thrive if they don't have strong uh, tech and digital ecosystems with mm. them as well. So what we prefer to talk about are innovation districts or innovation parks rather than per se pure pure life science parks. So even something like Oldley Park, which is the million square foot former life um, AstraZeneca research HQ at Oldley Park, um, will end up probably at about a 75-25 split life science and tech. And we've just developed out a building called the Glass House, which is particularly focused on tech and yeah. areas such as AI that will complement the, uh, the, the the life sciences as, as well. Mm. well. It's just a huge, huge amount con- con- converging technologies and innovation right across yeah. that whole area. And I mean, that's I'd- the thing, you're, people, people, mis- people misrepresent biotech as all people in white coats in labs, but actually a lot of them are just people in jeans in laptop on laptops aren't they they are they are and but the the other thing that i think we're, we're taking a very different approach to this in the fact that our business we talk about again these are these are going back to your um whatever you called it uh, bingo bullshit or whatever it was um you know we're a purpose-driven business we genuinely are a purpose-driven business we've talked about creating thriving cities for the last 20 years um, and that's what our, that's what really drives our business. So when we're developing out life sciences, we're not investing in the sector because we believe it's a hot investment sector in the same way that 30 years ago when I left London, City of London offices were the hot investment sector. Mm. We're investing in space for life science businesses and stimulating those economies in our cities because we believe that's going to help those cities to thrive. So it's a different mindset in terms of we're not buying property because we believe there's demand for it. We're working with our cities to create that demand. Yeah. And and therefore, whilst, whilst we are 
um, involved in Oxford and Cambridge, our focus has traditionally been upon uh, those uh, cities of the North and Midlands where there are strong growing um, health and uh, tech economies. And what we're looking to do is to stimulate the growth of those economies and then provide the space to uh, to satisfy it. And we got into all of this, as so often is the case, uh, by accident. Uh, the bit that we can take credit for is having our eyes open, but we bought a building on the Oxford Road Corridor close to Manchester University back in 2003, um, which was the former National Computing Centre. And we developed that out as the Manchester Technology Centre, sort of seeing the early signs of the tech uh, the, 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 the growth of the tech industry at that stage. Um, and then from there acquired the former science park and, and grew the, and grew that part of the business through the two thousands. But the root of it, you can take back into the 1990s when we started doing serviced offices and providing flexible space. Cause I think one of the big differentiators again, for fast growing industries like life science and tech is, 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 is providing that flexibility of pro- product proposition at the yeah. front end. And, 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 and they, bust a few of the the exist well they, they just bust a few of the pre-existing norms in the market because often people are worried about what's my you know vacancy risk occupancy risk but often with with a lot of life science real estate it's better when the when the small firms move out because you can, you can put the rent up can't you um but but a lot of what you've been trying to do is it, it goes far beyond real estate doesn't it so even Audley Park which is the UK's largest single site life science campus that there's a there's a huge amount that happens on that development than simply people in buildings paying rent yeah yeah so that's the point and that that kind of comes back to your your you know the way in which your business is structured as almost as a bit of a social not a social enterprise but it's you certainly you you give about 10 percent profit to charity don't you every year we do yeah yeah but the so the so what uh, uh, as you you know, from when we sort of when we when we first met, one of the differentiating factors of Brontwood has always been that we put customer first, and um, as we've developed our business propositions, that business proposition is developed by deepening the engagement with our customer, from providing customer focused offices all the way through then to providing the flexible space, creating community, and now. Uh, and we, we talk about this as a customer product pyramid with, uh, with all the way at the top of the pyramid being the business support package that then we wrap around that. And that is then, as you say, getting um, run, running accelerator programs, but also providing investments into, uh, into businesses as well. There are three things that typically companies want out of the business support in, in our ecosystems. Firstly, um, access to skills. Secondly, access to funding. And thirdly, access to the network, which mm. is particularly particularly you know if you're a smaller business it's access to larger business if you're a larger business it's access to creative smaller businesses it's access to the right professors within the universities it's access to the nhs etc so you know it's that that that's what we call our ecosystem and the funding the funding piece is a is you know is a really important part of that and in part it's about bringing funders to opportunities and vice versa but also for us it's been an interesting diversification of investment where when we acquired Oldly, we set up an investment fund with the local authorities, um, which is now fully invested and we're about to do round two of that. But we've also then invested in certain cases directly in firms through the through through the business and also how, how much has that raised? 
So the the first round of the fund was thirty five million, and we're uh, we're about to go through round two again with that life science fund, and then we've made a series of other direct investments um, through the, through the business, and uh, and so uh, it's something that we would see as an important part of the SciTech proposition going forward. But it isn't just then about our own funds. University of Manchester, Sheffield and Leeds have just announced the Northern Gritstone Fund, which is a fund that's being created, target of a couple hundred million to invest in spin-outs and spin-ins from those universities. And yeah. then you've got the likes of OSI down in, in Oxford, et cetera, and making sure that we've got one uh, obviously the quantity of money but more importantly wrapped around that money is the expertise to help um, those businesses then to grow and support yeah. them as they uh, as they move through those early stage rounds where funding can be challenging but that's interesting do you see more real estate companies having to be part of this tech transfer marketplace that you described because people like osi oxford science innovation at oxford have been they have been a pioneering body organization in in this in in tech transfer bringing skills and 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 money and investment and and ideas together yeah and people seem obviously fairly uh and and uh, and it's fair that they should be focused very much on on oxford and cambridge but there's a tremendous amount of uh of, of opportunity and innovation coming out of birmingham Glasgow, Manchester, all of the various uh, universities uh, across the country have different specialisms, don't they? Yeah, they do. And by the time, once you've aggregated, uh, for instance, Manchester, Leeds, and Sheffield, then there's more IP, there's more um, uh, there's, there's, there's more spin-outs than are coming out of Oxford or Cambridge, um, and therefore there's a, there is a huge opportunity. And I, I like to sort of I liken it to the investor to investment proposition ratio. And in places like London, there's obviously a high density of investors. Mm. Uh, yes, there are more investment investable propositions, but the ratio is out of kilter. Whereas in somewhere like Manchester, there's a lower number of investors. Proportionally, yeah. though, that's a high it's a higher proportion of the total investable proposition. So these places often are more attractive if you've got the infrastructure in them to be able to really uh, to really understand those uh, those 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 markets but mm. if I, I talk about that product pyramid which starts with the property proposition at the bottom and goes up to business support and if I look at potentially where I would see competitive threat coming from it's people who start at the top of the pyramid and are working down in other words people who are used to investing in companies who then start to put wrap around the business support package put those companies together in a community um, and, uh, you know, you've got the likes of somebody like Blenheim Chalcott who are operating scale space at White City who start life at, as, uh, as a, as a, as a sort of private equity investment house and then gradually start to bring the companies they've invested in together and mm. create that, uh, that space. And also by doing it somewhere like that, getting access to more, uh, investable propositions coming out of Imperial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let, let's talk briefly about Birmingham because that, that's been a big piece of expansion, over the last few years, where, where how, how is that coming along? It's 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 uh, it's it's fantastic, and uh, we the scale of the opportunity there is is is, is enormous. We uh, we've been in Birmingham. Uh, we bought our first building in the nineties, but uh, we we made the step with the um, the innovation business by acquiring Innovation Birmingham, the former Aston Science Park. 
uh, about four or five years ago. And uh, we've got uh, Enterprise Wharf 100,000 square foot spec scheme coming out of the ground there at the moment. And we're looking at uh, expanding that, holding quite significantly, basically working f- back into the city from uh, Aston and Birmingham City Universities, both of which have got some really, really interesting specializations. So Innovation Birmingham, which is the former Aston Science Park, tech-focused. And then down in Edgbaston, we signed the development agreement with uh, University of Birmingham for the Health Innovation Campus down there, which is life science-focused uh, development. Uh, so with the uh, with the tech to the north and the life science to the south, but then the interrelationship between the two, uh, plus uh, looking at some further schemes in the CBD as well. Uh, we, you know, we feel that Birmingham and particularly the wider West Midlands in the same way that we see, you know, the Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Newcastles, et cetera, having mm. great, um, uh, a great proposition is because not only are they able to take these new, this R&D and IP out the universities, but then with the uh, economy around those places, we're, we're capable of taking that to market, industrialising it as well. And one of the other big trends that we're seeing is more and more onshoring of manufacturing, particularly um, advanced manufacturing linked into the R&D expertise that we've got in the UK, whether that be in, in health or whether that be in engineering or uh, or, or other areas. Potentially uh, in, in, in construction and real estate as well hopefully. exactly yes um, yeah so and and you've obviously announced a, a relatively sizable deal recently in manchester uh, as part of the the, the brumwood SciTech partnership with with the university tell us a bit about that 1.5 billion pound uh development yeah i mean the it's the, the real estate plays is is incredible it is the former umist campus um I mean, interestingly, I found an old email on on my system going back to 2005, where I'd had a meeting with the previous VC of the Manchester University, who uh, had just undertaken the merger between UMIST and the University of Manchester, and uh, and I, and I was sort of speculating about the possibility of taking the surplus accommodation out of that uh, post that merger. Anyway, uh, here we are, 15 years on, and uh, and we're now going into partnership with them for for the whole of the surplus accommodation. Yeah which is the the former UMIS campus. Four million square foot. Yeah. Just 28 million solely on the public realm. I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, but it's... It, I mean, the thing is that it's some of the best public that's realm. That's going to be some serious public realm. It, well, it's some of the best public realm already in Manchester because, I mean, UMIST is um, is is a fabulous old um, university estate that has been hugely well invested with, uh, you know, wonderful, some wonderful buildings already there and uh, and some fabric, uh, there's a fabulous park and uh, it's a really characterful part of the city already. So so it's a part demolition and new build and plus the retention of some some fabulous assets. But the most interesting thing about it isn't the real estate as fabulous as it is sitting between Piccadilly Station and the Oxford Road Corridor Innovation District. It's the it's the partnership with the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really deep partnership. Progressively, instead of selling the land, and that must have been very tempting for them given the state of you know funding of the higher education sector at the moment. They have decided to stay in and retain a 30% shareholding in the development. So effectively, as we draw down land, uh, we then, uh, we then, uh, we then develop it out and the land value is their equity. Uh, so hugely innovative deal, uh, but one that takes us right into the heart of that demand generation with their tech transfer team, the innovation factory. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, only, only 
couple of weeks ago, uh, coming out of the Graphene Engineering Innovation Centre was a new graphene uh, concrete proposition that uh, effectively reduces uh, the amount of materials and uh, and, and carbon, etc., in in concrete by about thirty percent. So there's all sorts of very interesting new uh, technologies and uh, and things coming out of the university that we'll be looking to industrialise through uh, through the ID development, as well as bringing some of the biggest and most interesting companies globally to the campus to work collaboratively with the university and the rest of the city. That's fantastic, and and presumably that provides a a canvas and a model for other cities and other universities that are some of them are going to be struggling with pension contributions and, and other financial worries over the coming years so uh, yeah interesting model i mean so let I me mean, let, let, let's let's move on and, and i mean i don't want to i don't want you, you will have been asked this question many times about the future of the office and i don't think anyone listening to this really wants to sit through another <laughs> bunch of uh, vapid predictions but but what I am interested in um, is is how you as a business have shifted into into operations. We've talked about life sciences and and the operationalization of real estate is something yeah. we talk about a lot on on this on this podcast. Um, but the the shift towards doing that in 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 I say normal offices offices that don't have any labs or or or, or a on molecular biology happening, uh, that's occurring as well. And, and clearly, co-working has been in the news for all sorts of negative reasons over mm-hmm. the last couple of years with, with SoftBank and Mark Dixon doing his annual, uh, well, not annual, but he does it every, every six or seven years, puts the, you know, threatens the, the pre-packs at everyone's doors and, and gets rent cuts. But so there's a, there's a, there is a level of, of negative feeling towards serviced office operators but there is now um as we were talking about just before there's this sort of subshoring trend of people wanting to move back and real estate owners now scratching their heads and working out right how the hell do we make a few quid here mm-hmm. um but you're you're currently looking at, 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 at bringing on some some pretty major big name occupiers aren't you into some of your directly let managed offices we, we've been doing that for a long time we we started operating um serviced offices for want of a better word in the early 90s but it's it's ultimately um comes from that whole customer-led proposition of start with what it is the customer is looking for and then evolve your, your product for it um the i mean amazon have coined the phrase working backwards um it's a great read actually that if uh, if you get the opportunity at the moment the story of the way they run that business but if you start with that customer proposition first as opposed to where the industry started which is we need to fund this and what do we need we, we need, need long leases lease, yeah. exactly but um and so our buildings have operated like the kind of proposition that a WeWork would have been putting in place over the last five years where they'll take a lease over a whole building and then provide a blend of different types of space. We've yeah. been doing that, as I say, for the last 30 years. And, and that's a function of and, your, your ownership structure, I'm guessing, is that if, you, if yeah. you've got shareholders or a six-year close-ended fund, you can't quite do that. It's difficult, but it's also what has been challenging, but our banks increasingly, and what we've then now started to see is the institutional like it because what we then generate is a really granular income stream which is seen as lower risk Mm. you've got less building obsolescence because you're investing in your building little and often over a period of time so it actually becomes a more bankable proposition 
albeit that what you have got to then do is you've got to cross-collateralize more. So our industry, again, with its SPVs, let that one go if for whatever reason it, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work out. That doesn't work. It's, it's a bit more complicated to value, isn't it? Because it's not just, here's a 20-year lease to Astra. Here's actually, I've got to value this operational business yeah. and its ability to fill space and market space and it is but it's not that difficult really in the end and uh, well, and again we've been doing it for a lot we've been doing it for a long time so we we under we understand that but the this um the proposition that we've got by being really really deep in place we're finding is increasingly beating those uh, propositions that are, we can give you a desk in every city in the world um, because the desk in every city in the world isn't necessarily the best desk in the city. Whereas what we've typically done with companies is that they may start with us in a desk and 30 years later, they'll be in a hundred thousand square feet. And over a period of time, they've been in all sorts of different types of tenure. Uh, Just like you've gone from with 10 us. to thousands of employees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I moved offices a lot of times uh, al- along the way as well, often so that we can provide a customer with exactly the suite they want and then and then sort ourselves out afterwards. But, but is that, is, are we going to see more of that? Are we going to see more office landlords think, actually, why am I going to hemorrhage margin to a third party operator when I can do it myself? Yeah, this is, I think this is a huge question. If you look at what's happened in the hotel industry, and the answer would be no, because uh, in the hotel industry, what's happened is you've then segmented the different skill sets, and that, those have been outsourced. So you'll have the you'll have the brand and the booking engine, you'll have the operator, and then you'll have the real estate owner. Uh, my sense is for offices that it will be different, and that you will end up with a number of owner operators. Who, who both own and operate uh, the real estate, but there will be this fragmented model as well as we're seeing. I just think the leasehold model is is one that doesn't work. And if you go take the hotel analogy, it's the only companies it worked for really uh, a premier in. And of course, we've had Travelodge and their travails recently where mm. they had all their long leases on their upwards only reviews and that finally tripped them up. So I think uh, that it's likely that we will end up in in a in a similar situation to hotels where you have companies that are offering the brand and booking engine uh and the and potentially the operational management of the more flexible accommodation which by the way will be most of the building and then you'll end up having uh, uh, at, the, at the other end of the extreme, the owner operators like ourselves and like uh, like we know a number of the big prop co's are putting their toe in the water trying to work out how they do this. Yeah, and and is there is there a bit of a, a contradiction then between saying on one side we're going to create these amazing campuses in the middle of the town next to Piccadilly with, with with tens of millions of pounds of public realm, but equally saying oh actually you can go and work in the suburbs provided we've got the buses. Or is, it a, or is it a mix of both? It's a mix of both and go back to our purpose of creating thriving cities and ultimately what's going to make a city thrive is it's going to be having this, um, you know, this really strong urban core that is going to drive sort of high-end innovation as Bruce Katz sort of talks about the, you know, density, proximity and culture of collaboration. Yeah, so this is the, 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 the guru of... of uh Innovation districts from the Brookings Institute. That, that's right. Yeah, he spent quite a bit of time over over in the UK with us in in Manchester. But uh, yeah, so yeah, um, uh, he's got a good book, the the Metro Mayors. I think it's. Uh, uh, let me get the title of it. But the, that's uh, an absolutely fascinating book, uh, worth everybody reading. Yeah, 
Anyway, so they've got that proximity, density, and culture of collaboration, which, again, if you go back to future of the office and everything, I, I believe, you know, those factors that have been driving the global economy will continue. And, you know, proximity and density isn't isn't your bedroom out in your, your big house in Surrey. It's, uh, it's by being in Shoreditch or by being in the Oxford Road Corridor or mm. the Knowledge Quarter in Liverpool or, you know, or, or wherever. Um and then at the other extreme is the is this sort of hyperlocal and these the, these really thriving towns and villages that surround our urban centres that are very livable uh, places as as well and uh, the symbiotic relationship between the two um, for us is uh, is so important and uh, you know here we are. And a politics, I mean, d- democracy and politics just getting, I mean, we're going off on a massive tangent here, but here's the day, the day after the, uh, the, the Liberal Dem- Democrats overturned a 16,000 majority, uh, in conservative heartland after conservatives have, uh, have, you know, have just taken Hartlepool recently and, um, you know, d- democracy in the UK is, is is in a most peculiar place. I think the one thing that we recognise is, is that we, if we are going to continue to prosper as a country, we've got to take everybody with us. Mm. And we have become such a divided country, um, whether that be, you know, be North, South, um, uh, or for that matter, town v city. Well, it comes back to your, your K-shaped recovery. You know, we can apply yep. that in real estate terms to the polarisation of the retail market, but we could also talk about the polarisation of society. Exactly. And everyone that's been sat at home being paid to work in their offices and their bedrooms has done pretty well, but those poor souls that have had to go and deliver your soggy Amazon parcels or, yep. um, you know, ferret around everyone's pizzas and Deliveroo it's, it's a different it's a different journey isn't it and I think kind of comes back to you know, my the cynicism that I'm I was channeling early in the conversation is it, the cynicism of how many parties many stakeholders many areas of the public many politicians view real estate because of that 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 lack of connection and and some people would see real estate as accentuating some of these 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 splits and, and so I'm interested to I mean let's talk a bit about politics but I'm also interested to come on to culturally how how your business has has been I guess quietly doing without much fanfare what a lot of people make a lot of noise about and that that that's mm-hmm. that's really fascinating particularly the the, the charitable foundation and, and the ownership structure because I mean it's clearly self-interested to a point where that if, if 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 you've got a long-term interest in something you're supporting the people yeah. you're still going to have uh, income producing assets in 40 50 years so it, it's a uh, it, it, responsible capitalism actually makes a lot of sense provided you've got the business structure that 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 is minded to look beyond a five-year political cycle yeah it's so- a um, I was doing a talks with some students last last week, and uh, it was about leadership and mission statements and all of those other things you can get incredibly cynical about. But I wrote my first mission statement when I took over as chief exec of Brontwood in 1999, and look at that today. And it was to be to provide the the best value um, office space with the highest levels of customer service in the regional cities for the long term uh, health of our colleagues, customers, and communities. And those three C's: colleagues, customers, and communities have been driving the success of our business. That was you know, ten years to- before the wider property industry started started talking about consumers it still doesn't still Still, struggle with some people exactly and certainly in terms of communities well that's the whole piece that everyone's suddenly running around thinking i've got to reverse engineer an esg story where actually it's right at the heart of our business and yeah there's something about i mean in terms of the colleague thing that is something about the slightly paternalistic family business that does look after its people because you really do realize just how important um people in a business 
are. But actually, if you then take that into a customer service proposition, those businesses that develop the best, develop, deliver the best customer service are those com- companies that look after their people, look after their colleagues. And you can't expect somebody to deliver good customer service if they're getting treated like shit by their employer. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and, it's also just having a stake and having agency in what you're doing. Exactly. Um, and I, I see that, you know, we've got a, a business of 15 people here, but we, you know, we we're just looking around the room as I say, it, but we try and be quite nice to our employees and and not not you know and and I think as the businesses that we work with, it goes it goes goes in multi directions. So so a lot of companies at the moment are very focused on their sort of one in our case our one Bruntwood culture in and a lot of companies are made up typically of some people that work out in the field close to customers often the lower paid people and then flip side you've then got head office who really should be supporting them I mean one of the best reads at the moment is James Timpson every Sunday in the Sunday Times he's a close friend who runs a brilliant business he talks about the upside down business where effectively colleagues in head office are supporting the people in the front line they're the most important so what we've seen over the last 18 months are a load of companies that clearly don't have a one a one culture who you've got somebody pontificating from their big house in Surrey about the fact that they may you know they may not return to the office having not been in an office for the last 18 months and forgotten what life is like in one whereas actually 50% of their colleagues have been working in the front line all the way through this now you're not going to have much of a one company culture if you've got a load of people swanning around in the big houses at home um, taking the kids to school every morning and walking the dog a couple of times whilst other colleagues are uh, are working close to the customers on the front line yeah absolutely and and i think that again it comes back to this this perception of of one rule for them one rule for us which which is just not sustainable and if you're going to again typically the more and more the successful businesses push more and more decision making and autonomy out to those people who are working closest to the customer um, and then, as I say, use use head office to support those people. And in our in our you know our parallel of those people that work in our buildings, ultimately, they uh, they're people who um, are, are effectively yeah, they've got a stake in our customer our, yeah. our, our, our customer value proposition, which is the way in which we we sort of train and develop our people to work with our customers is to perform like part of their team and behave like part of their family, and that's the way that uh, um, we, we we get our frontline. People, all our, all our colleagues, to think about their relationship with the customer. We are effectively an extension of their team, mm. and increasingly, our buildings offer an extension of their HR department. As we're providing the amenity, the community program, we're providing the wellness proposition. We're an extension of their ESG team because we're helping them with their sustainability and with their connection into tackling things like homelessness in place or whatever it is that they're particularly focused on because of the depth of connections that we've got in those places. Yeah, and that that makes a lot of sense. How are you? How do you? Try, how do you try to measure that, and, and how is that changing with with new technologies? So, um, so one of the things that we're increasingly doing is is sort of is treading that balance between being a B two B business and a B two C business. So we have six thousand companies that occupy space with us and there we've got a b2c relationship typically with chief exec hr director finance director the key people office manager the key decision makers on that but actually there's they those six thousand company company 
companies employ 60,000 people in our buildings and we're developing more and more of a relationship with those people as we start to develop out the community proposition, the event strategy, the amenity, the health and well-being, etc. And so the way we're able to measure that is by the increasing level of engagement that we've got at both the B2C proposition through the Bruntwood Collective, our uh, our, 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 our community proposition, as well as through the... Oh, collect, it sounds like some sort of rap group. <laughs> well, better than a boy band, I guess, which is uh, what it might also have been. I'm a bit long in the tooth for that now, though. No, absolutely. But, I mean, let, let's so let, let's come back to politics briefly before we close off. Um, so, you know, have you ever been tempted yourself to, to put your hat in the ring? No. 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 I mean, I, I've had the fortune to work with some brilliant public servants over the years and I am full of admiration for them. They get, a lot of politicians get knocked, um, but actually at a local level, um, there are some brilliant people who truly care about their communities. Uh, I, I, I know my skill and my value <laughs> and uh, and it's definitely in business but in business as a force for good and we fundamentally believe that business is a force for good and business can have a huge impact on creating thriving cities as, as per our purpose but i'm better doing that than i would ever be in uh, in politics <laughs> and in, is um is andy berm going to be pm <laughs> Uh, I'm sure he could make a very good PM one day. He obviously I, wants to be. I, I, I'm certainly not commenting on that. And uh, but uh, he's uh, he's somebody that truly cares. Uh, he's a very bright. He's a very bright guy, and he and he truly cares. Um, and uh, and and although uh, not originally from Greater Manchester, he he's definitely got a true love and affinity now for. Mm. Uh, for, for for Greater Manchester and uh, is you know is 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 the next um, the next phase of uh, you know what has been hugely hugely uh, strong civic leadership in uh, in Greater Manchester over over the years and that isn't just in Manchester where Howard and Richard have been such a great great tag team but actually a lot of the talent that has grown out of Manchester City Council is now running various of the local authorities around GM as well so mm. we've got really strong leaderships in a lot of the uh, the boroughs. You know, Liverpool, really strong exec leadership now in Tony, uh, Tony Reeves over there. Um, you know, Tom and Judith over in uh, in Leeds, again, a, a great team. Um, and uh, and Andy Street, who, you know, has just been re-elected uh, mayor at the West Midlands, doing great work down there. So there are some there are some fabulous, uh, fa- fabulous people working in local uh, local politics. And, you know, for me, it's a great place to be. Um, working on the, you know, helping these places to thrive mm. again. Absolutely. And and finally, then, just final question: um, what What's the future of Manchester going to look like? Um, how's that going to evolve? I'm a massive, massive Manco file. Um, <laughs> this has largely been driven through the lens of music over the years, and, and we're very lucky to have a few clients up there. So I, I get to go up there and and uh, uh, and have many many fun nights out. But it. it but it, it's essentially it's the city that that many parts of London would love to be. This mix of walkability and culture embedded in the bones of the city. Yeah. Um, and how is it going to evolve over the next few years when you've got you know, a tremendous amount of development still still coming forward? Have immense amount of resi over yeah. the last few years. 
So if I, if I, I mean, I, when I lived down here, I lived in, uh, lived in Islington, went to City, LSE and then City and spent a lot of time Clerkenwell and that part of, uh, that part of London. If I look at that swathe from Islington through Clerkenwell to Shoreditch, that feels to me like Manchester in London and vice yes, versa. Yeah. It does a lot of similarities. And that I would say is the progressive part of London at the moment. That's the part of London that I can see will have the highest levels of office occupancy over the next um, office, as in desk occupancy. Well, we people left. Back. We've been here exactly. all Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's where you've got that uh, proximity density culture of collaboration. You've got people coming together who are creating things, driving new technology. And it's that vibe that we've got in, uh, in Manchester, um, in spades, and we're seeing in, you know, in various pockets in the other regional cities as well. And I think these regional cities, which got hammered so badly with our deindustrialization have recreated themselves now as you know fabulous places to live to bring up a family to work to to, to really develop a career um we're creating some huge businesses i think there's the highest density of unicorns per capita in europe come out of manchester um, particularly in ecom uh, where we're where we've been so successful uh so uh, i know i'm I, I i think these these cities are going to um really uh re- really really thrive over the next 20 years or so as we go through this fourth industrial revolution having learned the lessons from our deindustrialization mm. as long as central government recognizes that there is more to uh going through these big periods of change than than the classic norman tevitt quote of the 1980s of get on your bike mm. uh if we do invest in the infrastructure to support it if we do invest in the skills uh of the population to ensure that they're going to be fit for these new jobs then then these places are just going to get better and better and, and they've got to we're the most polarized um developed country uh in in the world uh at the moment in terms of the the difference in uh, investment and mm. uh, and gdp in the in london versus the rest of the country so we've got to balance that but do so in a way that doesn't level down London, but actually drives the productivity of the UK uh, mm. even uh, even further. So, message from Chris Oglesby: Get on your tram, get on your train, <laughs> um, well, get on your bike, but uh, but 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 a bit more than just get on your bike. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, look, fantastic to to chat. Always a pleasure to see you, Chris. Um, and lots lots to do for the next thirty years. Oh, yes, really. Um, well, that famous saying of find find uh, find find a job you're passionate about and you never work a day again in your life is definitely uh, part of my mantra. I'm so lucky to be doing what I'm doing. A good fifty percent of what I do is is outside of the business in terms of working in you know with our with our local authority partners, universities, etc. On the broader economy, which in turn then helps drive the business, but makes my life so uh, so fascinating and, and rewarding. Well, that's fantastic. Well. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much to Chris Oglesby and thank you very much uh, for continuing to listen to to Propcast. You can subscribe on Apple, on Spotify and you can listen um, back to this on on propertyweek.com. Coming up on Bosscast, we've got the bosses of Argent, Granger, um, Great Portland Estate, Soho Estates coming up over the next few weeks so uh, Chris will be in some good company but um, do do uh, do uh, come back and see us and give us a bit of a status update you know a later point Chris and uh, lovely to chat to you um, thanks a lot for listening I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we'll see you again soon